What's going on, nerds? Before we get to this episode of Nerds on History, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about our other podcast, Nerds on Film. Every week, Brian, Sarah, Kevin, and myself talk about movies, we make some jokes, and we say a lot of bad words. And if you're a fan of bad words, you're going to want to go listen to that podcast after you're done listening to this one, because Nerds on History won't let us say f***, c***, mother huge and tiny little or enjoy. Sound check. Check one, check one. Sound check, check two, check two. All right, what are we doing for cold open? What do you mean? It's your night to decide what we're doing for the cold open. No, you said we were going to do it, figure it out together. Brian, I just got off of work. You said we were going to... Brian, I've been working. You've been off of work for three hours you were supposed to decide what we were going to do for the cold open what have you been doing for three hours what have you been doing i've been working well i've been watching castle brian i want you to know something and i mean this from the bottom of my heart okay you suck Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Hello, sir. Good day to you. Or good, good evening. Day, good evening to you. How are you? I'm tired. I am also tired. We've got another late night podcast for you folks. Yeah. We gonna tone it down for a while. Quality. Quality. <laughs> That's what you're gonna get tonight. Quality. <laughs> The quiet storm of history. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yes, man. I am yeah. tired. I have, uh, uh, I have had a really long week. But you know what? This is my pick-me-up. This is what kind of gets me past that stump in the week. Uh, this gets me going. All you folks out there listening to us, that makes me happy. You hear that, folks? Some people have happy hour. Eric has podcasting. Exactly. Much healthier, actually. Oh, my liver loves me for it. Indeed. Yeah. Plus, you know, you usually go to half the hour, you have a couple of drinks, you, you eat some fried food, and it tastes delicious. This is probably the healthiest thing I do in my life. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm tired, but you know what? That's okay. There's nothing wrong with being tired. Tired means that you have a fulfilling life, that things are going well for you. Indeed. And things are incredibly busy for all of us at Nerdonomy. We all work in jobs during the day that are very demanding, and, uh, you know, no matter what job you work in, whatever sector you work in, it's a season that's ramping up because of the holidays coming up, so Mm -hmm. it's just, it's very draining. It is very, very draining. There's Um, always a lot of family gatherings and get-togethers around this time, and and those are good things, but they're also very, very, um, very time-consuming. They take a lot out of you. They take a lot of energy out of you. Sure, Yeah. Well, actually, I was wondering, do we want to tell the, our listeners the, our, uh, our announcement for January, or do we want to save that for later? Oh, let's tell them. Let's give them a little, little sneak peek. So, folks, who, those who don't know too much about the business of podcasting, there is a uh, convention called the New Media Expo, uh, a.k.a. Blog World, uh, as it used to be called, in Las Vegas every January. And uh, Nerdonomy will be going to this. Oh, Yeah. Indeed. Well, most of Nerdonomy will be going. Most of Nerdonomy will be going. For sure, Eric and I will be podcasting from Vegas uh, that weekend. It's January 4th through 6th. We may have a very special guest to join us on that episode. We're just crossing fingers, seeing if she could, she can do it. We, um, we're not going to say anything yet, but we'll give you a hint. 
she's been on the podcast before. Yes. That leaves that Go. narrows it down to like <laughs> that narrows it down to like four people. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's actually kind of a lame hint. But anyway. No, no, yeah. no. I mean it's you know twenty five percent chance of yeah. uh, getting it correct. So that being said, uh, I'm very excited about that. That's kind of my push through for the end of the year. That's because it's gonna be uh one, our first uh convention since Bacon. But also our first yep. road trip because we're driving. That's right. The first Neuronomy road trip. My first trip to Vegas. I've never been there before. I feel like we might want to do a special episode where we also record on the road, like literally like, as we're driving. That would be fascinating. We could do a history of road signs. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. History of license plates. Oh, I forgot to mention. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Sean's going to be there, too. Sean's being yeah. that. Well, we didn't say that yet. We didn't oh, say I, that. Well, we should have said it. Brian. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, a, I'm an ass. You are not on the ball tonight, my friend. Uh, my big brother, my Sean business Mo. partner, my editing specialist, uh, will be driving out also. Uh, he's meeting us halfway since Vegas is halfway between San Jose and where he lives in Durango, so. I don't know. Two Moriarty's leaving at the same time to the same point may actually tear the fabric of the universe. Oh, it's going to cause an explosion. Yeah. It so always does. We need to be careful. Yeah. It's why we can't play chicken. If we, if we end up playing, playing a game of chicken, Vegas is just going to blow up. Uh, yeah. If we could just harness it for clean energy, that'd be fantastic. It'd be amazing. We should get the scientists working on this, actually. Yeah, absolutely. We might have to clone you and Sean a couple of times, but that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Alrighty then. <laughs> I've been collecting hair samples uh, for weeks, so I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll be fine. Folks, just want to let you know, I'm, I have a pretty good poker face. I am terrified at the moment. As you should be. Eric has been harvesting my DNA. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite possibly the most ridiculous thing we have ever said on this podcast. And I'm okay with that. Shall we Shall get to listener feedback before our listeners <laughs> stop Let's do subscribing that. to this podcast? Like, what the yes, hell is wrong like, with these guys This tonight? isn't about history. <laughs> this is about DNA harvesting. No, it's not. It's about history. This week in listener feedback. Our first piece of feedback uh, comes from Trevor. Trevor won not one, but two trivia questions last week on our Facebook page. Pretty awesome. And he also answered a correct question this week, too. So he seems to know a lot. We might want to get in touch with him, find out a little more about this dude, because he seems to be pretty knowledgeable on things like us. Do you suspect, like I do, that he's actually a computer? Maybe. Or he could just be cheating. I don't know. We, we, we have no way of testing if people are Googling. No, I think questions. he's an honest guy. Based on his feedback, I think he's an honest yeah, guy. Yeah, I think he's an honest guy. Some of our followers who shall remain nameless, I'm kind of questioning whether they're Googling or not. But, you know, it's know. fine. When you when you get a collection of history nerds together there, you're going you're to get yeah. some very specific answers. This is true. This is true. Let me go ahead and read his feedback. First of all, thank you for the trivia. You're welcome, sir. Uh, I've been a big fan of Nerds on History for a while now, but I'm starting to get into Nerds on Film. Thank you very much. But it takes me a while to open up to new podcasts. His heart is of stone, and we have softened it with our words of awesomeness. That should um, be a t-shirt. <laughs> Uh, okay, from the beginning, sorry to get winded. I listened to all the stuff you should know and stuff you missed in history class uh, podcasts. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Listening to them to the point of driving my wife nuts with history and science facts. I only bring this up because like all shows, books, and podcasts, there is an evolution and transition to them. You guys are the future. Well, now, at least. You provide great tangents and off-topic conversations. And great editing, Sean. I don't normally get involved in the blogs or internet, but I thought maybe it was time. I would like to give a uh, general shout-out 
to my wife, Jessica, and my kids, Amelia and Lucy. What do you know? What do you know? Two excellent names, sir. If you happen to have a third girl, go for a Sophia, and you'll have the uh, the Brickmont trifecta. <laughs> On top of that, I would like to say thanks to Colby for getting me addicted to podcasts. Sorry, I know I'm all over the place with this message, but I never really thought of what I would say in the situation. <laughs> Keep up the good work, nerds. I'll try to actually donate sometime, because... I really do appreciate your time and effort, but I just always seem to find something to lose money on. You can read any of this or just the meat and potatoes, so thank you. Well, we decided to read all of it. So. We did. And you know what? You're allowed to be all over the place because you're awesome. Yeah, and uh, there are definitely better things to be losing money on, like us, for example. <laughs> <laughs> like us. We are, I guarantee, a hundred times better than gambling. Because <laughs> we guarantee you're losing your money with us. Gambling is 50-50. For us... Oh, you're for no- sure. It's going in a black hole. Exactly. Okay, well, next piece comes from uh, TD, uh, which, by coincidence, is the sound that a uh, Jawa makes. TD! <laughs> but that has nothing to do with this. This comes from... Nerd! Uh, <laughs> This comes from uh, this comes from TD. Subject is vampires, obviously referencing our uh, our vampire episode that we did during our whole month of Halloween. Isn't it crazy that was a month ago? Yeah, it is kind of crazy. Uh, time flies. Anyway, the message reads: Just finished Gumby, glittery vegan vampires. Then you go straight to goat suckers. So is the chupacabra glittery vegan? Mexican soap opera Twilight. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, okay. Well, first off, we need to we need to do what he says. Because I always do what the listeners tell me to do. Okay. TD, you're wrong. Thank now you. Now that we're done with that. So uh, <laughs> let, let, let's let's clarify, right? So the Cullens in the Twilight lore, whether you like it or not, they have never said they are the vegans because they said they are the vegetarians of the vampire world. And there's a very important difference. They eat deer. They eat the... That's right. They, yeah. they get the blood of animals. I think the equivalent of a vampire vegan would be like eating human food, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? It would. Because yeah. you're not getting okay. sustenance off any blood. You're just you're just doing other things. Right. Right? So... Good point. Uh, you know? However, being somebody who has watched multiple Mexican soap operas, by the way... <laughs> with I, it may or may not involve vampires. Uh, well, wait. No, no. I don't think I have seen any with vampires. Uh, you tell me there's not a, a Spanish version of Dark Shadows? There isn't, but there should be. That there totally be fantastic. should be. And it should, there should be. And it, there should also be chupacabras mixed into it, too. I think that'd be fantastic. <laughs> Just one chupacabra who no one understands. So actually, TD, you know what? I take that back. You're not wrong. You're right. That would be a recipe for success. I have absolutely no idea what it has to do with the overall realm of history, but I'm on board. I smell a future cold open in the yeah. works. Ooh. Well, it was a light week for uh, listener feedback. Yes, it was. But uh, that's cool because we got to riff around and joke around for a little bit. Yeah, and... had some fun. Had our listeners question why exactly they listened to us for a few minutes. That's okay. That's all right. That was it. Was it was, it was, it was fun. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, I would like to, however, reference a listener feedback that we had last week that leads us into today's episode. Uh, and this this one came from Elspeth. Uh, we read her lovely email last week on the show. Uh, and she brought up the the history of the Romani, of the Romani people. And I think it really struck a chord with me because it is by far one of those subjects that is grazed over, I think, in pretty much every other medium that's out there, right? There, there's not a lot of documentary work that's been done on it. There in, has been in the past 20 or 30 years more literature written on it, but the attempt to get it really publicly recognized isn't there. 
there's not a huge desire, I think, for people to really understand who the Roma people are and their history. Because it is a very long and, in many cases, very sad, very tragic history. But it's one that is worth learning and knowing about because they are perhaps one of the most culturally diverse populations on the planet. And they have such an amazing story. And we're here today really to kind of maybe bring it to you for the first time. Because honestly, I don't know about you, Brian, but in doing research for this episode, I learned so much. And it really opened my eyes. And I think I'm quite honest when I say that I'm kind of honored to do this podcast tonight. Really? Yeah, because I feel like this is really um, a big moment for Nerdonomy, because obviously we've, we've done some really fantastic episodes over the past, what, 62 episodes now? But I feel like this is the first one where we are really giving an opportunity to break a mold, to get out of the norm and really show something that is super important that a lot of people don't really understand a lot about. So I'm, I'm quite proud of us for doing this episode. And I haven't even done the episode yet. I'm already proud. We've done a good job of educating people on the facets of history that go unknown. But this is the first one where I feel like we're being a bit more socially responsible. And we're educating people about something that I think we need to understand. Yes. Beautifully said. And uh, when we talk about the Romani, uh, the gypsy culture, it is, in my opinion, from what the research we've done, it is one of the most misunderstood cultures from the American perspective. I wouldn't. If I, not I from would the go world beyond that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we have to say from the world perspective, because even though this populace has existed for a very long time in Europe, there are few Europeans who really understand who these people are. Who are, in many cases, their neighbors, and they're all around. They transcend borders in that sense. Yeah, and I think that once if we explore a bit more of the the main touch points in history, we're going to find that a lot of the misconceptions that we think of of the, the, the gypsy culture um, are based off of circumstances that were necessary to these people surviving. Exactly. Right? That and the the invention of race, which really was the justification of racism. Um, right. And we're going to talk about that, that you know, there was, there's this big change in the 16th century in the way that we thought about people, people in general. Right. And I think it's been a huge detriment to mankind. It has not helped anyone. Uh, and we'll, yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about well, yeah, there's how it um, came into existence. There's some um, that's almost a whole episode in of itself. Well, where do we start? I think obviously an origin is 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 necessary, right? Which is difficult for this topic because there really is nothing that is definitive. There's nothing that's been narrowed down to say that this is exactly where these people originated from, and this is how they got from point A to point B. Yeah, one through line that has been consistent with the Romani people is regardless of whether we're sure of where they came from, we know that the name always derives itself, unfortunately, from a term for people who are on kind of the bottom of the cultural scale. Specifically from India. Specifically from India, right? Right. Um, but yet that trend carries through through its perceptions and their survival throughout Europe, too. From what we can tell, from what anthropologists can tell, the Romani culture drives itself from a migration that took place from India, basically. Right. And exactly where in India is, again, kind of up to debate. Some people say it's Pakistan, which of course is its own country now, but was originally just a province of, uh, of India. Well, let's, let's back up for a second, because okay. to truly, really understand uh, where these folks came from, we had to understand more about the Romani language. And the language is really the key point in this, because there is no written history of the Roma. 
they have an oral tradition, and they've passed it down for centuries upon centuries, probably nearly 2,000 years, we, we, as best as we can estimate. So when you look at the, the language and you look at the lexicon, right, the vocabulary of these individuals, there are many, many, many words, the core structure of the language that so closely connects to the languages that are common in northern India. So you really kind of have to use the language as your guide. It's not going to pinpoint it exactly. And there has been some really fascinating work done in the field of genetics recently. There are certain genetic tracers and markers that connect kind of a random sampling of the Roma people with this Jack clan in Pakistan. Very interestingly, actually, there is a particular type of mutation that causes glaucoma that is found in both of these populations. And this, this so-called JAT mutation is kind of one way that we can cement an already kind of hypothesis of where these folks originated from, again, based on linguistics, based on the fact that so much of that core language probably connects to India. So the question then kind of becomes when, right? When did these folks leave India? And that's where it gets really tricky. Because we know that there was a migration into the Near East, and we know it most likely came into Persia. So you had this movement of people, which is not uncommon, because we know from the gypsy culture today, from the Roma people today, that uh, they are nomadic in, in, in nature, right? They were probably most likely refugees, maybe expelled from that area due to violence or war, famine, economic reasons. Who knows? One theory is that they may have actually been uh, gifted, because it was not uncommon at that time to take people who were in that kind of serfdom, right, who were the lower class, who were part of your your region or your your province that you ruled over, and literally give them away to somebody else in a in a far off land as a as a gift. So that's one possible explanation for how they got into the Near East. As an explanation, because of the they were most commonly associated with pe people who are musicians. Right. So there's one legend that says they were a series of entertainers who uh, I think it was in was it Moldavia or it was some part of Eastern Europe where they were just they weren't needed anymore. And so they were just kind of shooed away. Definitely. That is one aspect of Roma culture. Another one, though, is that they were craft workers. Right. So they were right. very skilled in basket making, uh, in turn, weaving metal metallurgy. Right. So working with uh, with metal and creating tools and weapons and things of that nature. So they had all these different trade jobs. And if you're talking about a culture that is probably at its origins, even nomadic, that makes sense. Those are the kind of jobs that nomadic people tend to really do. So what we find interesting, though, is the language continues to kind of help us understand this movement of these people, because we know they came into Persia based on the language, probably pre-Arab invasion. And we kind of know this because there's a lot more Persian words in that lexicon than there are Arab words. In fact, there are pretty much zero words from the Arab world that have fallen into the Romani language. But there are Persian words. So they must have spent some time in that area of the world. How long exactly? Could have been a couple hundred years. It could have been more. So we think maybe like second and fifth century leaving India and then heading over to Persia and maybe sticking around for a hundred or maybe longer years. Let's also trace the word Roma for a moment too, right? As far as we can tell, the word goes back to uh, the Sanskrit word doma, um, which means a member of a low caste of traveling musicians or dancers in Kashmir. That is a very large definition for a single word, but that's basically was the word that was used for in its context, right? So um, the names uh, Lom and Dom are related too. 
And if we think about how the L and D become R, well, if we think about as we're migrating up slightly north and slightly westward, getting to a different linguistic sound altogether, right? right? And uh, as we venture further west, perception of certain consonants change. And uh, not to perpetuate stereotypes, right? But when you hear the, the words L and D, those are both consonant sounds that can be misinterpreted for R's. Sure. Right? Or if you don't have that particular sound common in your own language, you substitute it with something that you do that sounds kind of similar to that. And uh, D is actually the sound it makes when, you're, when R's are rolled. Right. And um, it's not uncommon for certain R's in, in Sanskrit to have a rolled sound to it, so that may be why the, the, the tube may have been confused. The possibilities are kind of limitless. I mean, nobody really knows for sure. Exactly. But that, it, it kind of those, makes those sense. Those are just kind of intuitive guesses is what they are. They don't know if that's actually what happened. But yeah. thinking about it from just a, a, a people perspective, it doesn't that doesn't seem like a too far-fetched of an explanation. So if you, if you think about this time in history, right? So around, let's say, 500 AD, you're, you're thinking about the, the Eastern Roman Empire, and you're thinking about its far reaches and where it connects up to. And it took time, but eventually we do find that the, the Romani end up moving further westward, right? Moving into the areas and around Greece. And how long it took to really do this, nobody really knows. And it was probably multiple migrations of people kind of leaving. But eventually, people kind of centered and clustered and grouped in and around Greece. Uh, and they took with them those words that they had in Sanskrit, and they took with them the words that they had in Persian. Uh, and some people say, well, okay, well, if they ended up in the Near East, why didn't they have more Arab words? Because it means they would have only been there for a couple hundred years, and there's this larger gap before we see a really defined explanation of them in Europe. Europe major. So... It's also very possible, though, considering that the Arabs, when they did come into Persia and they kind of took over in that area there, they were the ruling class, right? They were the elites. They well, the were, ruling class is always the elite. Yeah. So they, they were the people who were speaking Arabic, but the lower class, right, the caste system that, that was brought with them that already cemented them into kind of that peasant status, right, the lower class within that community, why would they even hear those words? Why would they even be connected with them? It doesn't make sense. So even if the Arabs were ruling in that time in the part of that world, it's very unlikely that those words would have moved into the, the Romani vocabulary. So they could have spent some more time there. They could have spent, you know, 500 years there. We don't really know. What we do know is they eventually do end up in Greece. And that's kind of their arrival in Europe and how they are introduced to the rest of Europe, because we'll find from there really the second of these kind of great migrations. Around what year is this? So that's where it gets a little bit tricky, because the first kind of official reference to these individuals comes to us from the 14th century. So, you know, we're early in the 1300s, and around that time, we find references that are being made that are pretty clear in the way that they're talking about these individuals, that they've been there for a while. So they're re referencing a population that very well has been there for maybe a couple hundred years. They're already kind of established, right? To the point where they've gone ahead and now given them a name. Uh, and this is really interesting because the word gypsy, right? We think of the word gypsy today. It's very common. But we don't really think of how it's connected. Uh, and that's actually via Egypt. And I know I've said this a hundred times on the podcast that all roads lead to Egypt, but this is more coincidental than anything. It has actually nothing to do with the actual connection of the land Egypt. It has to do more with the word for Egypt in Greek, which is Egyptos. Which is also the same origin of the word Coptic, right? Coptic is actually, through different translations, comes from the same word for Egypt. 
right? There, there is definitely a Greek origin within demotic, which is a, a precursor to Coptic. So yes, there is kind of a, a roundabout way that that does get connected with it. Yeah. That's a little more of a tangent. Sorry. That's a little side tangent. That's um, okay. Yeah, because the perception of the Greeks was because of the, their darker hair and uh, skin. They thought they were Egyptian. They thought they were North African. Yeah, and they confused them as such. And so they, they simply kind of labeled them as being Egyptians. And that word eventually kind of merged and became associated with gypsy. So it kind of took yeah. on its own form. And if we think about it, the Greeks, that's actually kind of understandable because we know from our previous episodes um, that the Greeks had a heavy trade and heavy cultural interaction with the Egyptians. So if you see someone who's phenotypically similar to the Egyptians, it makes sense that they would just make that assumption, even though it, it was wrong. Yeah, it, it was incorrect, but, you know, these things happen all the time. Yeah. L- look at the Native Americans of America, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a perfect example there. They thought, you know, those early American explorers who were trying to get to India, they thought they found it, and therefore the name just kind of stuck, even though... Sure. The Native Americans of North America have absolutely nothing to do with India. Absolutely. And it's interesting that they made their way into Europe from Greece, because now the more I think about it, the more as I'm looking at the overall arching story of how the Romani worked their way in, it makes a, a lot of sense, because Greece was the hub of the Orthodox Church at this point in time. We're talking the uh, early to mid-second millennia. So we know it, by this point, the Western and Eastern churches have already broken apart. And culturally, Greek was still very heavily present because of the latter half of the Holy Roman Empire, right? From the, the what was left of the Byzantine Empire, even though the Byzantine Empire kind of stopped functioning, I think, by about the year 1400 uh, officially. I think it's that's when it more or less became the Holy Roman Empire uh, on the Western end. So that being said, because of the influence of Greek culture, the fact that you also see later on that the Romani are also in Eastern Europe, which is also where Islam and the Greek Orthodox uh, churches right. are present, it's kind of, it's all following the same kind of path, if you Yeah, and it, it, and it kind of goes up and comes back and goes back again via the Turks, and it, it goes all the way around. And it makes perfect sense that these folks would be moving up further north and kind of westward over a period of time and moving into the former Byzantine Empire. In fact, there's even some of the earliest references of the Roma from about, uh, I think it's 1280s, that appears in tax records within uh, Byzantium. And it references these Egyptani. So again, it's, it's connecting these people with Egypt, even though they have nothing to do with Egypt. Yeah, which is also interesting because what was the modern fact we were talking about? That a lot of uh, people who are Romani nowadays decline to actually reference their actual cultural background because they think it's just going to lead to further persecution. Discrimination and violence, yeah. So it's <laughs> we see a sign of this almost super early on as a, a, a more of a circumstance, really that may have worked to their advantage later on. Uh, so once we kind of move back in, into Greece, right, and now the Romani are, are established there, uh, there's references being made much more often in and around the, the Peloponnese area in, in Greek. And this is largely due to the fact of pilgrimages of individuals from Europe leaving from Greece and going to the Holy Land. And on their journeys and their travels out of that location, they make reference to many camps and settlements of the Roma. And they're not saying very nice things. They're starting some really mean, kind of nasty and derogatory rumors, and they're, again, connecting them with the Egyptians. And, and what year is this taking place again? Uh, this is going to be in the late 1380s. So this is still circa the latter half of the Crusades. Right. And there is definitely um, a lot going on in this area. There, there are some individuals who write that there were, you know, hundreds of huts 
all located on the outer skirts of the city. So these were not people who were welcome in. These were people who were being kind of kept out. And isn't that always the case, though, when it comes to these kind of refugee populations? Nobody really wants a home for them. And look at this travel that must have taken place. If we accept the fact that they most likely left India about, you know, 200, 300 AD, these folks have been traveling for nearly a thousand years. A thousand years. Yeah. And they have never found a community that has been willing to accept them. Well, you know what I think of right away that is a very close parallel to this the Jews. The Jews, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, totally. And it's so sad because then you, you see the perception of these individuals of the time, their contemporaries, who are viewing them and looking at them in disdainful ways. And, and the first references about them are nasty, horrible things that they're saying about them. No wonder they could never really escape these stereotypes and racism that the Romani people keep encountering in their lives because there's this stigma around them. And it's really sad. What is fascinating, though, is that this would really be one way for them, however, to break out and spread out and spread throughout Europe and really give themselves a chance to survive. Because it's very likely if they just stayed in one location, a war was going to come along, a disease was going to come along, and eventually they'd be wiped out. So this this idea of to use a religious term, but kind of exodus, right? This constant moving and... and Diaspora. Yeah, there you go, exactly. This is something that was now reintroduced to them and introduced to them in some way by Christianity. So here are all these people who are traveling for religious purposes. The Roma, you know, obviously are having some sort of interaction with all these folks who are leaving this port, and they're realizing that maybe, just maybe, Christianity is their ticket out of here. And that's when we find the second big kind of migration, if you will, of the Roma out of... Greece. Now they're ready to spread their wings and move throughout Europe. And for the next couple hundred years, that's exactly what would happen. And they would move into all different parts of Europe, right? So they would actually move downward and go back into what would become the Ottoman Empire. They would move up and move into Wallachia, which would later become Romania. They would move into Central Europe and into Western Europe. And it would take them, in many cases, several hundred years to really accomplish this in their farthest reaches. And to do so, they they left on pilgrimages. They left under the idea, okay, maybe, just maybe, we'll be accepted if we are connected with Christianity. Because clearly that's a big thing that's going on right now in Europe. So maybe, just maybe, we can use that as kind of our ability to spread out and escape from this area where we're starting to be persecuted. And if you think about the people at the time, particularly those leaders of the the local regions and locations uh, all throughout Europe, Christianity was something that they wanted to uh, to show off. It was showing that they had good Christian values. And what better way to show that than to accept people who were on a pilgrimage? So many, many Roma started leaving and going off on these supposed pilgrimages, many of them with these kind of letters of safe passage, which existed you know, before passports were effectively being used. What's interesting is that very few of the Roma at that time were Christian at all. They were just using this as a way of escaping persecution. And sure. it makes sense. Why not, right? Why not use this and, and wherever you go, you're accepted and you're given food and you're given shelter and you're given protection. Uh, that's exactly what you would want. Yeah, and if your primary objective is to survive, these are things that I think anybody would do. Absolutely. Um, it wasn't always under this kind of guise of, of pilgrimage, religious pilgrimage. Other times it was just, we want somewhere safe. Can you help us out? And many local regional leaders and and um, people of, of importance and wealth would give them these letters to allow them to to go 
and and visit other locations. Sure. S- sadly, they were probably also doing it because they wanted to get rid of them. Uh, again, here was this other population of refugees who were coming in, and they, you know, all right, well, I don't want to hurt, you know, turn you away, but here's some food. Go up to the next province. Here's a letter that'll get you there. Hopefully, you'll you'll be okay. It's very sad. Well, it only gets sadder. <laughs> yeah, folks. Sorry about that. But I mean, we, we don't mean to make light of the situation, but not at all. you, you kind of have to try to inject some humor into it because it is so very sad. Because during the 14th and 15th centuries, uh, they made their move out into the rest of Europe. Uh, it would only be a short time later that the rest of Europe would decide, we don't want you. Yeah, you know, it's true. Because, I mean, if you start looking at in this early 16th century, from 1506, Louis Twelfth expels all Romani people from France. Then a uh, short time later, I should say about maybe 20 years later, right? 1526 approximately. Yeah. Henry VIII expels all of them from England. And then systematically, you pretty much have from 1526, pretty much all the way through 1560, within maybe, maybe there's one gap, but there was like a decade where nothing was really happening. But year after year after year, you see all these other countries uh, expelling them. Germany does it. Sweden does it. Uh, Denmark does it uh pretty much northern and western europe is just saying no get out and i think what was the the last one the final straw was um in in spain right philip the third he does an experiment that unfortunately gets replicated later on with other cultures too which is the redistricting of romani into uh into ghettos into ghettos essentially yeah and the word ghetto actually is a word that's derived in italian um but it was because i believe italy did it as well but it was done with not just with the gypsies it was also done with the jews really just very sad and these places they were going into were very poor living conditions cramped pretty much ridden with poverty not a very good place to be living at all no and eventually it would lead to what the spanish call today as black wednesday and this was the the rounding up and systematic extermination of many of these individuals in these communities, not like what the Nazis would later do a few hundred years later, uh, where wow. thousands of Roma were were killed. you know men, women, children, it didn't matter they were they were murdered. you You hear this and you think, well, this is absolutely atrocious. It couldn't have gotten any worse for for the Roma, but ironically, it's the place where there are the most Roma now where it was the worst for them, perhaps. In the areas of Wallachia and Moldovia. Though there was a small clan that did rule over Moldovia for a very short period of time. They did have their, their a day in the sun for a little bit. Yeah, that was when kind of more or less they, they were first introduced into the region, uh, when it wasn't quite so bad, when there was an existence of, of freedom, where you more or less had two groups, right? You had groups of Roma who decided that they wanted to settle down, and those are the ones who are actually able to do well for themselves and kind yeah. of gain a, a higher class and a higher role in society. Right. And there were those who followed with the traditions that they had learned now over the past, you know, thousand years. And they lived in their caravans and they lived in, in a more uh, mobile state. Right. Well, let's talk about why things were so bad for them in that part of the world, right? Well, so we've already talked a little bit about Vlad Tepish, who uh, I think 100 years before that was ruling Wallachia. He was known for impaling turks on spikes right yeah not not exactly you know people magazine's person of the year not not remotely now let's think about this for a second right they came into europe through greece greece is only a short boat ride away from turkey number one number two you have people who are phenotypically similar to those who have, have lived in turkey 
So right away you have this animosity toward them because you think they're the enemy, even though they're not, just because they look like the enemy, um, which is unfortunately, again, a recurring trend we've seen from all over. We saw him back in Greece when they were mistaken for the Egyptians as well. Yeah. Uh, we saw it, I think, probably uh, really just from the beginning. So that would explain why these people were so mistreating. They were, they were enslaved for 500 years. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, some people argue, well, what could be worse than death? Well, living without freedom is a pretty horrid way to live. Yeah, and from the 14th to the 16th century, there was essentially no legal status for any of these individuals. They were subject to whatever their master's law was. And usually killing them was frowned upon, but not, you know, whipping and beating them with 300 lashes. You know, you know these are reports that have long-standing traditions <laughs> of this way of punishment that continues into even the 17th and 18th centuries. And it's it's really atrocious because they had no rights. They had to ask for permission to marry. If they decided that they had enough slaves and they didn't want any more, they, they restricted them in, in that basic biological right and, and the freedom to, to reproduce, the freedom to be with somebody that you wanted to be with. They were blamed for anything and everything that went wrong, and they were the subject of absolutely really atrocious uh, tragedies. And, and while killing them was not common, there were times when it was absolutely and totally okay, and people would just get yeah. away with it. And we don't just see this in the context of uh, regional laws. We see this in religious laws, too. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me when looking at the 16th century, again, going through the systematic set of laws that were that were made was one of the edicts issued at the, at the Council of Trent. Uh, council of Trent was a big council in the church because, one, it was how do we deal with this growing Protestant Reformation that was uh, going through Europe at this point in time. So there was a lot of issue with that. A lot of big things were established at this council. They were talking about things about original sin, redefining, uh, making sure we were all there, everyone was clear on what the sacraments were and how they were being instituted. But one other thing that really blew me away was that they uh, decreed that men of Romani descent could not enter the priesthood. This is the only time, in my knowledge, of the Catholic Church where they've ever chosen a specific culture of people and said they were they were not allowed to receive the sacrament of holy orders. Um, that's a pretty hefty thing to say. I don't think the church has ever restricted someone just because of where they came from, except for this point in time yeah. in history. And once you get into the 17th century, now you have very specific laws that are created around slavery and the restriction of these individuals. And, and one of them, which comes from what is known as the Code of Wallachia, I'll read it verbatim, I think kind of sums it up. Gypsies shall be born only slaves. Anyone born a slave mother shall also become a slave. The master shall have no rights over his slave's life. The master's rights over the slave shall be confined to selling him or giving him away. Gypsies without a master shall be slaves of the prince. Marriage shall be recognized among slaves. A separation shall be declared when a marriage takes place between a slave and a free man without the master's knowledge. So every aspect of their lives is being determined at this point. And it wouldn't be until nearly 200 years later that there would actually be efforts made to emancipate these individuals. And it eventually would have come right in around the time that we, in our own country, decided to emancipate our own slaves, uh, when we made that decision that this was no more, and, and the Civil War would lead to that eventual outcome, and we would, we would free the slaves of the American South. This would also happen in this area of the world, which would later become Romania. 
and kind of paralleling what you would have is again even though they were no longer slaves they were still treated as second class citizens they were still ostracized and you know the subject of of terrible terrible treatment by by many people in the country for whatever reasons they they felt were necessary at the time they were the scapegoats of the entire country and even through all of that they have still decided to stay where they are even being as a nomadic people that they are they've they've found a life there and the largest population of roma in the world nearly in some estimates two and a half million still reside in Romania today. And don't get me wrong, there has been a lot of effort, particularly in the 20th century, to make real headway in providing these individuals as much protection as possible, as much liberty and freedom as possible. But they're still being seen as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem that persists throughout all of Europe. Therein lies the problem that we're having, I think, uh, in our country today, right? And it's not even with the with people of Romani culture, it's with pretty much every non-Caucasian culture in America. It's not enough to give them equal legal status um, because at that point, the law represents the cultural consensus, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You can't change cultural consensus overnight. You can change a law overnight, but you're just changing the, the letters. You have to, that's a kind of a starting point to how you really change the people and it can take a long time and especially if you don't really have public support behind these things happening it can take much much longer and it may even be reversed um so yeah and we, we do talk about you know a large population of folks kind of staying in romania but there's also kind of another migration out of that after slavery had been abolished and then we have another kind of re-emergence of folks coming out and in, into other parts of europe and particularly up and into Russia. And I think it's important to note the parallels, the contrast, the stark contrast between the way that the Roma were treated in Europe and the way the Roma were treated in Western Russia, because it's very, very different. Mm. Pre-revolutionary Russia didn't really have an opinion one way or the other on these individuals. They knew that they were there and they knew that they had their communities. And maybe it's just because Russia's so freaking big that nobody really cared, but they were essentially creating their own communities in around what is now Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, Russia Major, and it was okay. They had more freedom in Russia than they did anywhere else. And even when the revolution came, you know, even in 1917 and the period that would follow that for mm, roughly about 15 years or so, there was actually uh, a real effort now kind of being made to identify these folks as a cultural group and be able to provide them with support and help. Uh, and that would that would kind of continue for, for a while longer. That is up until the fall of the Baltic Stakes, up until the time that Russia would essentially collapse. And with the fall of that Iron Curtain and all the ripple effects that happened all throughout those Balkan states in there uh, would have a, a kind of stark and quick reverse on the treatment of these individuals. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves still, because we do need to talk about uh, a very important period of history. And it's an important period of history for all of Europe and for all of the world. And this is, of course, the, the Second World War. Mm. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but this is such a huge topic, it's impossible for us to, to cover every tiny little facet of it. Uh, but we're going to give you some amazing resources at the end of this podcast if you want to do exactly that. Because uh, I think you'll find it very eye-opening. And before I get into this, I do want to talk a little bit about perceptions around race. 
because it's something that I kind of prepositioned earlier in the episode. And, you know, I apologize, listeners. I know this is a little bit uh, more serious of an episode that we normally do. We usually have a lot more humor that we inject into it. But this is a much more serious topic than I think we're, we're, we're really used to taking on. And it's, it's really important that we understand the origins of how people can be so nasty to other people. Absolutely. And I think that's the point I was going to make at the end of this, if we didn't already say it. Around the 1600s, you start to see us begin to make different distinctions of different types of people. Right? And you can argue this has some uh, basis around the philosophy of the Great Chain of Being, because the Great Chain of Being was a philosophical uh, idea around the same time that enforced the idea of class, right? And enforced right. the idea of, well, this is who you're meant to be, so just be that. Don't try to, to do anything. Really, just imposing a caste system, if you are if you want to talk about it. And, you know, it's human nature to feel defensive against what looks different. But right. yet, Europe had shown such a history of training with other cultures. It's kind of weird where this starts to, to happen. It's also this interesting mesh of you're starting to notice the slave trade taking place uh, in Africa. Um, Europe is going through a tremendous change at this point in time of expansion uh, across the world. So, of course, its cultural norms are going to be challenged when when this is happening. And what I find really fascinating is if, just, again, from the, from the Catholic perspective, look at the popes who existed between the years uh, from the early first millennia, right? Most of them non-European. I mean, you had people who were European. You had plenty of Syrian popes. You had a couple of popes from North Africa. By the 14-1500s, you had pretty much exclusively European popes. And in fact, we're already beginning to see the signs of what would be a 400-year monopoly on the papacy uh, with only Italian uh, popes. Right. So, But nevertheless, that even being said, and forgive me if I have the years wrong, guys, but for at least a couple hundred years before this at this point, we're seeing exclusively European popes. And we've seen that up until recently with Pope Francis. He's the first guy, I think, since the last Syrian pope, which was Pope Gregory III. So that's talking about over a thousand years. Yeah. And as these people were encountering different people from around the world, there was one thing about them that stood out, and that was the color of their skin. And when you're talking about, you know, the 18th century, and you're talking about them trying to rationalize their decisions and what they were doing in those countries. So moving into Latin America and essentially enslaving that population and converting them over, um, going into Africa and, you know, taking slaves and, and bringing them to the Americas and creating an industry for slavery. They were treating human beings in horrible, horrible fashions, and they had to have some sort of justification for it. So they created this concept and idea really around race to justify what they were doing and stating you know, in the 18th century, Carl uh, von Lein, who pretty much gives us white and black. He differentiated people as being white, red, yellow, and black. Those were the four types. And they were attributed to different characteristics on different people from around the world. Europeans were considered to be white. Uh, and in his own words, were the ones who were ruled by laws. So already he's creating this sense of superiority that the whites have over every other color. And this would only continue to, I guess you would have to say, de-evolve as time would go on. Yeah. And by the 19th century, these racial theories were circulating in all sorts of horrible and terrible ways. That, that also doesn't seem that, that far-fetched when you think about the cultural perception of the color white. 
in European culture and including our culture, white is a, is a sign of purity, right? It's a sign of cleanliness. It's also a sign of divinity. Yeah. So if you're imposing that hue upon the skin that just happens to share a little bit of similarity to that hue, it's easier to make that connection and uh, that indoctrination to, to take place. Yeah, I know it's just a coincidence, but it's not surprising that so much of the rest of the world considers it associated with death. But <laughs> It's kind of ironic, don't you think? It is a little <laughs> ironic. Um, but then by the 19th century, you had terms like Caucasian and Germanic and Aryan, and these are words that would later carry over. And there was this, this misconception that anybody who was mixing these races was therefore unworthy of life and degenerating. And the, the overall people, they were no longer pure. They were no longer worthy. They were unworthy of life. These are actual terms that were being used of the time. But you, you also have this concept of, of racial hygienics, okay, that by mixing, you're creating a lower class of people. And these lower class of people are responsible for terrible things like crime. And the gypsies, the Romani, these are all people who were being now associated with this because they didn't have any clear way of defining them within this literal black and white way of looking at race because they were from everywhere at this point. And it didn't make sense because in their own racial profiling, people of northern India were actually considered to be Aryan. And people of northern India I've always been considered Aryan. Yeah. That's where the term Aryan comes from, right. actually. So it, it didn't make any sense now within their own way of explaining who these people were. So they, they had to create this whole idea that by the fact that they were there and they were mixing with other populations and they were they were merging and becoming, you know, a whole new group of people, they were therefore bad. <laughs> and they therefore had to be associated with something bad, so they, they had, therefore had to be associated with crime. Yeah. And there are so many of these stereotypes that we think of when we think of the Roma, right? And we think of these kind of wanderers who, you know, they're, they're these are the words of the stereotypical view, right? So they're lazy, they don't have jobs, they have no morals, they have no values, they have crime, they have Known this and that. for being con artists, things mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. they're all unfounded. Completely. Yeah, people who are nomadic in their way of life, okay, they they have a huge sense of value on family, more so than they do on material goods, more so than they do on even getting a nine-to-five job and working it out in a, in, a, in a factory. They prefer the professions that keep them close to their family, which means they are their own boss. They do their own work. They're tradesmen, craftsmen, and they want to be around their family. They want their family to learn that trade, so they bring their children with them into that. There's nothing wrong with that. That is something that was paralleled. Look at the blacksmiths throughout Europe, right? That There was a yeah. profession where... That was a trade that was passed down father to son. Exactly. And was honorable. And you were almost always self-employed. Or, you know, you may have been in the, in the employment of somebody who was really rich and wealthy. But you were usually, you know, your own boss. But because you stayed in one place and you stayed in a town and you assimilated to that culture and that religion and that language, you were accepted. Because you didn't meant that you were somehow bad even though they're doing the exact same thing. And I guess the the point that I'm trying to make, and and to tie it back into this idea around race, because they're just looking for anything. They're pulling for straws. They're just looking for any excuse to treat these people horribly. And it would really come to a head with the Nazis. Yeah. Who, you know, they they say that the true evil is a lack of empathy. And that is so very true. To look at people as being subhuman and not feel a thing when the worst possible things happen to them, even if it's right in front of your face. That's what the Nazis were all about. 
They were about power, they were about control, and they were about getting that in any way they could and playing off the fears of individuals, of people and communities, and creating all sorts of myths and stereotypes and race hatred. Uh, obviously yeah. not just about the gypsies, but you know the biggest victim of all, the Jews. Um, but anyone who didn't fit into that mindset, anyone well, who was I mean, outside of that. If it wasn't the gypsies as the scapegoats of society's problems, it was the Jews, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, we could do an entire month on the, the history of the Nazi Party in Germany and the history of what leads up to World War II. Um, We're not going to do that. No, we no no. <laughs> we can't do that tonight at all. We could easily do it, but the point he's trying to drive home uh, is that this is where it all kind of came to a boiling point, right? Yeah. It all had kind of hit a peak. And when you already have a culture, continent, I should say, I'm sorry, that is struggling financially because of a worldwide depression. We, we think the Great Depression was America. No, it was... America was the biggest economic power at the time, and it started it, but it was felt all across the world. And no worse than in Germany, because Germany was already struggling because of all the reparations you had to pay to Europe because of losing World War One. Exactly. They were already a broke republic. So the fact that you have these people who are destitute as it is, when you're desperate, you'll, you'll believe anything that can give you hope. Yeah. Right? Even if that means hating your neighbors. Exactly. And... You know, you, you look at uh, you look at the the events of 1935 in Germany. You look at the Nuremberg Laws, the laws that stripped all German Jews of their citizenship, property, their lives, essentially. And that is exactly what was going on to the Gypsies at the same time. They passed the exact same laws right there within the Nuremberg Laws, and they were talking all about the Romani people, and they were referring to them as being uh, half breeds and degenerates, and the people who were unworthy of life and therefore unworthy of citizenship, unworthy of property. And that's when they start rounding them up and starting to put them into concentration camps. By 1938, Heinrich Himmler, who was the probably one of the most insane of all of Hitler's henchmen, the one responsible for the SS and essentially the one responsible for outlining the systematic destruction of 10 million people and during the Holocaust. And he's the founder of the, uh, of the Black Shirts, correct? Yeah, of the SS. Yeah, yeah. He, he is quoted as saying that he, he needs to solve the gypsy question through the nature of that race. And, I mean, I think one can kind of infer what he's meaning, and that here are all these, these nomadic people, so we're just going to go ahead and round them all up anyway. We're just going to, wherever we find them, we're going to take them, and we're going to throw them into camps. And nearly 100,000 of these individuals uh, would end up being murdered in that process of just rounding them up. Yeah, and it's you know it's going to be impossible to say the exact numbers because due to this period of time, um, even though the Germans were very meticulous with their paperwork, uh, they considered these people so valueless that they would right. just, just lose the paperwork and they in, wouldn't care. In regards to the Jews, they considered them to be an intellectual threat, and they considered them to be a very real threat, which is why they went and systematically wiped out nearly every Jew in, in, in Europe. With the Romani people, they considered them to be so low class, so subhuman, that they barely even bothered to take account right. of the atrocities so they were committing. the numbers are actually quite big here. They vary from somewhere the, like... Well, yeah, the, the, the range is enormous, because on the lower side, it's somewhere between half a million. On the high side... It's like two million. It's like two million. And the truth is, it's impossible to really tell, because we know almost certainly at least 100,000 individuals were killed in the process of just rounding these folks up from the provinces and around Germany and, and Poland. Uh, we know that, from records anyway, that there was probably at least a half a million who were exterminated in the death camps. 
Uh, we know that there were thousands more who died in the forced labor camps. Probably one of the most mind-boggling things about all of this is that while all this is going on, there are actually free Romani who are serving in the German army. And many of them are, in fact, decorated soldiers who, in 1943, at the height of all of this, were shipped away on, on trains with medals pinned on their chest to be exterminated in gas chambers. That absolutely blows my mind. Yeah, no so, so it's impossible, unfortunately, though, to say really how many were murdered, but one is one too many. And, you know, after the Second World War, the atrocities that were committed to the Jews were so extreme that the world had to take notice. And there were efforts made by countries from around the world to, to enlist in aid. And it's so sad, though, that for the Romani, they never even really had that opportunity because no one cared about them in Europe. No one cared about them at all. And absolutely, what was done to the Jews was just so atrocious that it, it changed history. There were now war crimes when war crimes had never existed before. And you, you think about the sheer volume of people who were, who were killed, and it's mind-boggling. And then you think to the Roma, and you think, well, absolutely it's horrible, but let's face it, not, many, not nearly as many were killed. But you think about the density of the population, it's, it's on, the, on par with what was done to the Jews. There weren't all that many gypsies yeah. around. There really weren't. And, you know, the killing of 100,000 of them was the eradication of them of, of several countries within Yeah, Europe. I mean, let's put this into perspective for a second, right? And let's, let's assume for a second uh, worst possible numbers, which was the 1.5 to 2 million yeah. executed. Assuming that. You know, we can estimate that I think somewhere between five and six million Jews were exterminated in, in the Holocaust, right? So we're talking about one quarter to one third yeah. of the amount of Jews that were killed. Considering the proportion sizes of those populations, that is astronomical. I mean, to this day, there's only about 15 to 18 million Jews left in the, on, in the world, period. And one third of those people were wiped out 70 years ago. Yeah, there's probably about six million total or less uh, of the of the Roma people today. Exactly. And that's about proportionate. Again, yeah. the proportions are about the same. Yeah. Uh, and I think that as sad as that is, as tragic as all of this is, that does kind of lead us into the modern world today and our modern perception around these individuals, because it really still hasn't changed. It hasn't changed that much. And these populations are oftentimes expelled due to, to war, and they end up again, as refugees. And you found not that long ago, within recent memory, in, in the 1990s, we had all this stuff going on in the Baltic states with the fall of communism. And we had all these wars going on. And we had all these populations of Roma that were being expelled. And they ended up in places like France, and they ended up in places like Germany and Italy, uh, in the United Kingdom. And so many of them were greeted, thrown into camps, refugee camps, and then deported. I know. With nowhere to go. Yeah. And again, the Roma wander. It continues to this day. Um, Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was president of France, he had uh, implemented a deportation uh, law for the people of Romani descent. And this is in 2010 that this is happening. This is absurd how this is still happening. Um, though some people argue that was a diversionary tactic. Ironically, he didn't actually care all that much about the Romani people. Uh, he didn't have a distaste for them, but he didn't care enough about them to want to keep them in the country. So, I mean, this still stirs up controversy. It is, it is just really, I don't even think I have the words to express how wrong this feels that 
that this kind of thing is still going on. And, you know, I just want to take a moment. I want to talk a little bit about Romani culture, because it's important for us to understand who these people are, because we've understand how they've been treated and we understand the tragedies that have been associated with them. But we haven't really taken the opportunity to talk about who they are as a people. And there's definitely this kind of romanticism that is surrounding them, right? Here they are, these travelers, the wanderers. It's very exotic. Um, they're oftentimes associated with fortune telling and, and things of that nature and music and dance and singing. And some of that is very true. They are a tradition that is absolutely oral. They have no real written history. And they're totally okay with that. They don't have a problem with it. They know that their origins are kind of up in the air, and that's okay with them. They, they feel fine with that, because the local traditions, the community, is what is most important. And family is what is most important. And I mentioned it earlier when I was talking about you know their trades and, and the work that they choose to take on in many cases, and it is so much rooted in their community, wanting to stay with that community. The idea of leaving and going and working in some cubicle or in a factory or wherever is absolutely unacceptable. The idea of mastering your own trade and teaching that and supporting your community and, and you know, taking that and taking that trade elsewhere, traveling door to door, you know, that's a that's a real stereotype that's associated with gypsies and it's due to, largely to the fact that many of their trades do take them to perform services in people's homes uh you know whether it be carpentry or whether it be you know uh landscaping or whether it be you know some other trade that they that they know that they can perform on a kind of contractor basis right from one place to the next yeah and that sense of freedom is extremely important uh and their culture is so so unique and it is in many ways what does kind of segregate them from the rest of society, though, right? And partially it's due to just that learned fear to be afraid of outsiders, to not be very trusting of them because of all the persecution that they've been through already. Um, and the other aspect of it is just that's how the culture has evolved. It has got a lot of customs and traditions that keep them very close-knit to one another and, and away from from outsiders. You have... A very uh, dualistic sense within the community. There's there's a sense of what is pure and what is unpure, and that's very permeating over a lot of their social norms. So, for example, the upper half of the body is considered to be very pure, and there's really not a whole lot of uh, restriction given to that area of the body, if you will. So, for example, nursing a child and and exposing a breast is totally acceptable, and and it is not seen as being in any way shameful. Exposed cleavage, for example. Yeah, exactly. That's not that's not shameful. Anything from the lower half down, however, is associated with being unclean. And this is for both males and females. Both males and females. Yes. Well, it is very heavily associated with women, due largely to the fact that women menstruate, uh, and that is not in any way, shape, or form a uncommon idea. That is something that is all around the world, right? Uh, you hear about like the menstruation huts of many civilizations where women are actually kind of closed away in that area. Uh, we've talked about that a little bit in our kind of rites of passage episode. But um, it's very extreme in some cases, to the point where it actually dictates the way that they live and the type of home that they choose. The preparation of food, if anything from the lower half were to touch that food, it's gone. It's thrown out. Women, their skirts and their aprons are considered to be very unclean in that sense. And a men's trousers, those are all considered to be very unclean. And, and contact with those, particularly in the preparation of food, is forbidden 
in, in many cases. You have to be very careful. Even washing those garments, the upper garments are washed separate from the lower garments. They're not allowed to intermingle. Um, choosing the layout of your house. If you have a kitchen that is in close vicinity to a, to a restroom, that's not going to work. And in some of the Romani culture, it's so extreme that they will only live in a single-story home. They don't want to live in a two-story house because the idea of any lower half, be it male or female, walking above the other is, uh, is a big no-no. And it's an interesting, though, to see how that's developed and how that's dictated the way that they live their lives. And it's not that they are not able to live in two-story homes to afford them to, to, to move into a home like that. You know, they, they can in many cases. Some Romani are very wealthy. You know, they buy very nice cars for their caravans. They own nice things. It's a, it's a way of showing a, a sense of good fortune, actually, is to own these nice things. But they choose not to because of their, of their way their culture is. And if we understood that, if more people understood that, then I think that these perceptions about them would, would start to fall away. And I think yeah. it's important that people understand these things. Well, you were talking about how uh, it's not uncommon in the Romani culture to do these kind of what we consider blue-collar kind of jobs and do things to help work for the community in home services, door-to-door. I would also consider kind of a marketplace kind of kind of uh, selling is, a, is another trade that we can uh, associate or misassociate with Romani cultures. Um, and this is something that I, I want to address because I think that's one of the things that we can do day-to-day to help be more accepting of it, is to really nip this misperception in, in the bud. And a particular word that I think maybe you're alluding to. Exactly. So, um, so first of all, so there was um, where uh, a place I used to work, there's uh, kiosks because uh, it, was, it was in a shopping mall. And uh, the people who work there are actually Israeli citizens, Israeli immigrants. Um, they've been you know, selling, and it's all kinds of things. Sometimes it's, it's uh, cell phone accessories. Sometimes it's beauty products, depending on, on uh, what group it is. And the thing that was really annoying to me, the thing that really, really offended me right away is when uh, other coworkers started referring to them as gypsies right, right away. And they were saying that because they were being aggressive in their, their salesmanship style, and they were saying it because of the way they were trying to sell their, their goods. Yeah, and they had a, a thick accent that was probably unidentifiable to the to the average ear. When you are supposedly tricked into paying more money than something is worth, the term that is thrown around quite a bit is that you got gypped, and that derives itself exactly from 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 the gypsy culture. It is totally inappropriate to use. I even feel disgusted even saying it. And the other word is the same thing: is when you say you got screwed over. The other word is to say you got Jewed. And it's neither are okay. Neither they're both tremendously inappropriate and offensive. Yeah, and in particular, in, in the word "gypped," I mean, it's it's fallen into very common language. Yeah, you know, people just say it in passing and don't even understand the meaning behind it. Yeah, and, and I, I was one of those couple, people. I had to call a couple coworkers out on it too. Yeah, I think yeah. you probably called me out on it because I I I remember someone i don't know who it was in my life but i remember saying that like hey you know that's a derogative towards gypsies i'm like really oh my god that makes total sense i never even thought of it i just started using it because i heard other people use it and that's the thing that's what happens if you're not aware of the culture if you're not aware of those people you're not even gonna understand when something like that happens it's gonna totally go over your head and you're gonna start perpetuating it being completely and totally unaware of it 
So if you've ever said the word before, we're not saying that you're a bad person. We're just saying maybe be a little bit more cognizant of it in the future in your use of it. Because now that you kind of understand where it comes from, it's not a very nice word. There is a, a professor I had an interaction with when I was in college. She taught intercultural communication. Mm-hmm. And she had a two-sided rule, okay? Having misinformation is okay because we understand that that, that happens. Repeating misinformation is not okay, especially once you know that it's it's misinformation, right? Right. This rule, I think, everyone needs to under, uh, understand. Yeah, and you know, I, I look at television and I look at shows like My Big Fat, uh, what was it My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding? Yeah, and there's now also American Gypsy as well. Yeah, yeah. And I look at um, what's the one in the UK, Travelers Got Talent or something like that. I don't know. I don't. I you know, there's a lot of there's two two sides of the argument, right? One side is you're giving them more exposure, you're showing people more of the culture, but you're also you're also you're, being very selective in what you're showing people. Exactly. And in many cases you're you're not really helping to distill any stereotypes. You're exactly. you're only you're working kind of reinforcing them. Exactly. So yeah. I I have very mixed feelings about all those those kind of shows and I just wish I just wish that there was more education about this. Yeah. But let's I, talk about let's end on the positive though. What's yeah. been done to what's the word I'm looking for to help make amends for the injustices that have been done in the past? Well, in Europe, Angela Merkel, who is the current Chancellor of uh, Europe, and uh, not Chancellor of Europe, <laughs> Chancellor of Europe, sorry, uh, <laughs> the current Chancellor of of Germany, mm-hmm. and has been the Chancellor of Germany for over a decade now. She's very popular in that country. Approved of a monument that stands for the people of uh, who suffered, sorry, uh, for reminding people who suffered because of the National Socialist Party, which is, of course, the formal term for the Nazi yeah. party. Other thing I think we want, and the, a big part of our research tonight is because of the efforts done by the University of Graz. Yes. Graz, which is in Austria. They have the, called the Romani Project. There's also a similar one that's been going on in, in uh, England as well. But the Romani Project was done uh, in consortium with the Council of Europe, which is a cultural council uh, under the European Union, for those who don't know, uh, who have developed a incredibly comprehensive uh, database. And not even a database, just a, uh, they consider them fact sheets that explains Romani history, objectively, the positives and all the mistreatments. It, it is really astounding how much information we were able to, to uncover. Yeah, and I'd like to read out that website now for for our listeners who'd like to go and and, and learn some some more about um, uh, more about this culture. Uh, go to uh, romafacts.uni-gratz.at, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spell it out for you. So that's romafacts r o m a f a c t s dot uni u n i dash gratz g-r-a-z dot a-t and we'll put a link up to this on the on the website maybe um just so that you folks can can quickly and easily go and reference this absolutely Uh, and of course on our facebook page and twitter as well a tremendous wealth of information and and we've spent a good amount of time talking about this and we've only barely scratched the surface so i have uh just an appeal to our listeners again if you if you can find the time in your life and there's a lot of data on here so i mean Maybe just even reading the introductions to each of these is, is is good enough. But head over to the website. Give it a read. It's really fascinating. It really is a huge eye opener. And learn a little bit more about these folks. They're in the they're in the news right now. You know, there's there's a lot of controversy going on in in regards to this young girl uh, who's known as Maria in the in the media, who her parents who are Bulgarians, uh, Bulgarian Roma, who 
essentially gave her away to another Roma family who, who live in Greece because they had no money to, to feed her. They had no way of supporting her. And so they, they essentially gave her away. And, and it's called both positive and negative attention to these individuals. And some of it is founded, others other is not. And it's important to understand that many of the Roma who live in Europe today are some of the poorest people who live in that country. And many of their nomadic ways are, have long disappeared. And they're now very much a stationary people. And they need help. They need support. And there's a lot of effort to help send these kids to, to school, send these kids to college. Uh, and rather than scorn them for their way of life, try to understand their culture. Because they can be a part of society and they can do really well for themselves. And they don't have to be at the bottom of the pyramid, folks. They really don't. And they don't want to be. I just think that, uh, that we can all do our part by becoming a little bit more understanding and educated. Absolutely. And this is true for, for any culture, right? This one especially. If you understand, you can't judge. Because judgment is you saying something is, is good or bad based off of a purely off of a subjective feeling. And that's not necessarily wrong. You know, it's good to trust your intuition. It's good to trust your gut. Once you know the facts about this culture, you'll see that this is a, a fascinating people who uh, have a rich background uh, who deserve the same treatment as everyone else exactly does. I think that's the, the message we're trying to put forth in this episode. Here, here. Tonight. That being said, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, I'm just, I'm just reeling from it. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a really emotional episode. It has, indeed. Yeah, it's, it, it's tough when you're going about the sad parts of history because, you know, it doesn't always, it can't always be gags and it can't always be... Um, just about the interesting facts. And yes, these facts have been interesting, but they tell a story. As we talked about in our our headline for our podcast, history is full of amazing stories. This is an amazing story. Um, it's also a very amazingly sad story yeah. as well. And one that we sincerely hope has a happier ending later on. Um, and if anyone out there who's a listener who has descendants who are Romani, please tell us. We would love to know. Uh, if we've missed something, if there's an insight that you'd like to share with us, we, we, we really genuinely want to know so we can share it with the rest of our, our audience. Um, and you can do that, uh, as well as any of our other listeners can offer us feedback through our website, Neuronomy.com. You can also see all of our wealth of social media uh, connections that you can get to us from. You can also follow us uh, on our personal Twitter accounts. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at The Brickmont. And um, if you do like what you hear... Um, we are currently a user-supported podcast, so uh, we would, you know, if you have, have it in your heart and in your wallet, uh, the, click on the donate button and uh, send us any amount. We will no amount is too small, no amount is too big either, and uh, we will certainly put it to good use. We are not trying to fill our pockets. We are simply trying to make Nerdonomy a better company to give you the best content available. For those who don't know already, we uh, our Nerd Cave does not have a central heating system. Uh, we have an air conditioner, but no way of, uh, of heating it, and it's getting quite cold now. Part of that can be fixed by us having an actual ceiling, which we don't really have one at the moment. Another thing, and or you know, the cheap solution, which is just to get us all snuggies. Um, I still think that's the best way to get it, for <laughs> totally honest. Yeah. So that, that's our, and plus we're still trying to pay off our computer, and we have, we have other things we're we're striving to to do. What, so. what Brian is trying to say is, give us money, please. I, I think that sums it up. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'll and I'll just stop with that so listeners this has been a this has been a heavy one this has been a heavy one but uh we got some fun coming up 
I think, over the next few weeks, right? We've got some some pretty fantastic episodes that we've got planned out for you guys. And I, and I promise you, I promise you the next episode, you'll be able to laugh and laugh heartily. That's my promise. You promise? I promise. Okay, because I'm not even sure what he's talking about. But okay, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Gonna laugh. There will heartily. be humor. Oh, you we'll will f- laugh. I'm certainly there will be, yeah. It's guys, not like we're doing a history of clowns or anything. I'm just saying that, you know. Oh, Eric hates clowns. Uh, though it would be fun to talk about the history of clowns. I think it'd be fascinating. Um, well, you can do that by yourself then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring out the robot. <laughs> the robot host that we've been working on all this time. So, yeah, we actually have the rest of the year planned out already. And uh, we've got some fun stuff in store for you. We won't reveal it just yet. But um, it'll be funnier. We guarantee. Yeah. All right, folks. Until next time, stay nerdy. And tune in to us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. So do you want to do something funny for the post-credits? Not really. Yeah, me neither. Want to get a sandwich? Okay.